Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair under you or in front of you. It's a brown hardback like this. If you go to page 823, you'll find the book of Galatians. And if you go to 824, you'll find Galatians 2.11, where we're going to begin our reading. Galatians 2.11 to 21 on page 824 in the Pew Bible. Hear then the word of the living God. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However... When they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those of the, from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you are a Jew, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ. Is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Father, we praise you for this beautiful and powerful passage. In it are the words of eternal life. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired and breathed out these words through the Apostle Paul first to the churches in the region of Galatia, and now all the way to southeast Los Angeles County. We pray that we would hear your word, that faith would come by hearing, that we would tremble and humble ourselves under your word. Give us insight, enlighten our eyes, open our minds and our hearts, and transform us by your word. For those here, Lord, who have not yet come to you who have not repented from their sins and trusted in Christ, we pray that even this morning you would take out hearts of stone that you would put in hearts of flesh and write your new covenant law on their hearts that they would know and love and trust in Jesus. Put the fear of you in their hearts that they would never turn from you again. All of this, Lord, comes only by the power of your spirit. And so we ask now that he would help us to glorify Christ's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? 
What good is it if you get everything you want in life, you die, and you're under God's judgment forever? This question relativizes everything else we experience and value in this world and in this life. If I gain the whole world, all knowledge, all health, all physical strength, all physical pleasure, all money, all wealth, all relational fulfillment, and then die and go to hell, or die and am absent from a God who set up the world, what did I profit? You get 70 years, 80 years, maybe 95 years. Some of you are past that even in our church family, and God's still keeping you going strong. You get at most, you know, 100 years, and then you die. And then you got 100 billion ages of years of existence. If I'm not right with God, if I'm not acceptable in God's sight, that's what the Bible calls justification. Being right with God and being acceptable to God. If I'm not justified, if I'm not acceptable, if I'm not right or righteous before God, then all is wasted and useless in a very, a very real sense, at least to me. I, I do love my kids. I love my church. I love my neighborhood. I want the gospel. We want the gospel to spread to every ethnic people group across the globe. And yet, if we are not acceptable to God, what does it profit us to gain the whole world and lose our soul? So what if our church becomes big and overflowing? So what if um, we're happy all the time for these few short years and then we're in misery for an eternity? Martin Luther wrestled with this. October 31st is the anniversary of the, the nailing of the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany, and Martin Luther has famously said, justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. And we can't know if that is actually what he said, but we do know he said this. We have documentation for this. Martin Luther said, because if this article of justification stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. If we don't know how we're accepted before God, if we don't know how we're right before God, if we don't know how to be saved, then the church collapses. What are we doing if we're not knowing and propagating the knowledge of how someone can be right before God? Martin Luther said this, This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Martin Luther is very good at words here. You know, like, you should know the gospel, you should teach it, and you need to beat it into the heads of people continually. It really is the fountain of life. If they don't know Christ and they don't know how to be saved, then how are they going to live for Christ and enjoy Christ in this world and especially in the world to come? This really does become the central and most important message. Another has written, wherever the knowledge of justification by faith is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished. The church is destroyed and the hope of salvation is utterly overthrown. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, I was a Roman Catholic growing up for the first few years of my life. The Roman Catholic Church has anathematized. That means they have cursed people like us who say that we have, in our church's statement of faith, our Baptist faith, the message, it says, full acquittal in justification by faith alone. They have said, if you believe that, you're cursed. 
The Council of Trent, one of the councils of the Roman Catholic Church, Canon 9 says this, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, the ungodly, if you're justified, declared righteous before God by faith alone, in such a way to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be cursed. So if you believe that you're justified by faith alone, you're made right with God by faith alone and not by your works, that you don't have to cooperate to get justification, you are cursed according to the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, if you're going to be accepted before God, you need to believe in Jesus and do some other things. And if you don't, you're cursed. The Roman Catholic Church has also said in Canon 23 of the same council, if anyone says that a man once justified can sin no more, we don't say that, nor lose grace, and that therefore he that falls and sins was never truly justified, let him be accursed. In other words, if you believe that you cannot lose your salvation, you're either never truly saved or you're truly saved and you never lose it, that's what we teach. That's what our doctrine statement, our statement of faith that this church teaches. If you say that, you're cursed, according to the Roman Catholic Church. So this church, our doctrinal statement, if you believe what our doctrinal statement says, then you are cursed by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, don't be mad at Roman Catholics, okay? Here's why. And you might, if you're a visitor, maybe you're from a Roman Catholic background. Here's why you shouldn't be mad at them. Because Paul told us to curse, not be mean and and like mean-spirited to people, but to declare accursed those who teach a false gospel. You're in Galatians, right? Look at Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Keep your finger in Galatians 2, but look at Galatians 1, 8 and 9. It says this. But Paul's saying, but even if we, me, an apostle and my apostolic band of church planters, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, what should happen? Let him be accursed, or a curse be on him. Galatians 1.8. And then look at Galatians 1.9. As we have said before, I now say again, in case you didn't get it in verse 8, one more time. I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be what? Accursed. Two times, Galatians 1.8, Galatians 1.9. If you preach a false gospel, you are accursed. So for the Roman Catholic Church to declare what we're saying as the gospel is a curse, they're just trying to obey Paul. Now, I think they got the gospel part wrong. So we think that their gospel that they preach is actually accursed. But this is not just a debate between Bible-believing Christians and Roman Catholics. We're not, we don't have a bone, you know, we don't have a fight just towards one particular group. We want the true gospel of how someone is right before God to be clear to everyone of all religions every chance we get. Because we want everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we need to understand the gospel lest our church go astray. We need to understand the gospel lest our lives and our families go astray. We need to understand the gospel and we need to be able to say it regularly and beat it into the heads of others with kindness. With a smile, with love, with gentleness. So here's the main idea. Okay, here's the main idea of the text, Galatians 2, 11 and 22, or 21. Guard the gospel for our church. That's what God wants to tell us this morning. You, church member, you need to guard the gospel for your church. If you're a member of another church, guard the gospel for your local church. I'm not saying this to pastors, 
Galatians 1, 8 and 9 is not written to pastors. It's written to Christians. You are responsible to guard the gospel and make sure a false gospel is not preached in this church. Not just from the pulpit, especially in the pulpit, but everywhere in this church. Sunday school classes, conversations. So guard the gospel for your church. And that's going to be our first point. Our second and third point in the sermon is really two reasons why we need to guard the gospel. We need to guard the gospel because we've been justified by faith alone. And we need to guard the gospel because we live by faith in Jesus. So point one, guard the gospel. Why? Number point two is because we're, we've been justified by faith alone. And point three, because we live by faith in Jesus. And that will take us through this. So first let's look at the main command or the main idea Verses 11 through 14, and then we'll look at the two reasons for this main intention God wants to bring about in our church's life. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, well, PJ, what am I supposed to do? I don't have a gospel to guard. I don't have a church to guard the gospel for. That's okay. Actually, this is one of the better Sundays to be here because we're going to clarify what the gospel is, which is the main message of Christianity. So let's jump in. The main idea, guard the gospel for First Southern Baptist Church and beyond. Guard the gospel for First Southern Baptist Church and beyond. Verses 11 through 14. So, again, the main idea here, we see Paul is going to oppose Peter here, and he expects us Christians to do the same. He told us in chapter 1, let a person who preaches the false gospel be what? Accursed. Now, in chapter 2, he's showing us by his example how he has guarded the gospel. He's not calling Peter a false teacher, and he's not calling Peter accursed, but he's saying that if you're going to guard the gospel, sometimes you're going to need to oppose even the leaders of the church, even your best friends, even those who are respected the most. And so we see here in verses 11 through 14, in these four verses, we see Paul opposed Peter as an example of how we must oppose other Christians, even in our own churches. So how does Paul oppose Peter? Let's look at verse 11. But when Cephas, Cephas is Peter, that's another name for Peter, that's his Aramaic version of his name. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. Why did, why did he stand condemned, Paul? Verse 12. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away. By their hypocrisy. So here we see that Peter is being opposed by Paul. He's being confronted by Paul. Peter was wrong. He stood condemned in his actions. So Paul does what any true friend will do. You want to know the test of a true friend in your life? They tell you the what? The truth. Even when it's uncomfortable? Yes. Because they love you. That's why they tell you the truth. If they just cared about themselves, they wouldn't tell you the truth because they don't want the uncomfortable feeling. That's why Paul says in Galatians 4.16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Is, is an en does an enemy tell you the truth? No, an enemy doesn't tell you the truth. A friend loves at all times. The wounds of a friend are faithful. And so Paul opposes Peter here and tells him the truth. Now, why does Paul oppose Peter? We're going to look at the why and the when. When should you oppose Peter or when should you oppose people? And why should you oppose people? Why should you oppose others in your church? Why should Paul oppose Peter? Verses 12 and following. Look at verse 12. Why? For, it says in verse 12, Peter used to eat regularly with the Gentiles. So you'd have church lunches. Today we have an all-church lunch. 
Right after the service, you can go grab food. If you brought food, maybe use the refrigerator upstairs. Every last Sunday of the month, we have a meal together. You're welcome to use the refrigerator to put your food in in the morning, and then you can pull it out, use the microwave if you want to eat together. Well, churches ate together regularly. That was, that's typical. Read Acts chapter 2. That's what the church did. They ate together. And so when you're eating together, the church would eat together, and when you eat together, you get to fellowship together. But then Peter used to mix it up with everyone. And then all of a sudden... Some Jewish Christians, or perhaps, or some, yeah, some Jewish Christians from James Church in Jerusalem, they came to Antioch, because that's what you do, you fellowship with other churches. So they're there, and they're eating, and they start telling Peter, perhaps, some, some issues that are going on back in Jerusalem with some persecution. So Peter starts to separate from the Gentiles, and eat only at the Jewish table. Then they start to reserve seats. Seats taken, Forrest Gump, right? Um, seats taken, you can't. Can't sit here. It's only for those who have eaten. Who we're, we're, This is the kosher table. This is the table that's obeying the law covenant of Moses. This is for the Jews. And all of a sudden, when Peter goes, a lot of people follow him. Even Barnabas starts to separate himself during mealtimes in the church. And so Peter, or so Paul, sees... A problem here. Now, what's the problem here? Some people say, I think wrongly, well, Peter was scared because there were people who were eating there and they were intimidating to Peter. And so he got scared of them and he was scared that they were going to persecute him. So he started to eat with them. That just doesn't sound like Peter. I mean, that was, that, that was Peter maybe when Christ was arrested. But after that, Peter is nothing short of bold everywhere he goes, right? Acts chapter 2, he's arrested. He says, I'm going to obey God rather than man. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. You want to throw him in jail? Fine, I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. When Peter gets the vision in Acts chapter 10 of the, you know, the, the food coming down of all the unclean foods according to the law covenant of Moses, a voice says, rise up and eat. And Peter says, Lord, you know, I've never touched that stuff. Rise up and eat. And then later he gets a vision that a Gentile is going to call for him and he's going to go there and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So Cornelius calls him, he goes and preaches the gospel. Before he finishes his sermon and closes in prayer, the Holy Spirit falls down and people start professing faith in Jesus and praising God. Clearly, they're part of the people of God without obeying the law covenant of Moses. And Peter saw that. In chapter 11 of Acts, the church was calling him to account. Why would you go to the Gentiles? Why did you do that? Peter says, I had a vision. And even when I was preaching, before I even finished, the Holy Spirit came down and saved them. I saw it with my own eyes. You can't, tell, you can't get mad at me for this. I didn't do this. I'm just following the vision and the Holy Spirit came. Who are we to stop the Spirit of God? That was Peter. And now he goes to Antioch. It just seems crazy to me to think that he goes there and a few people are saying, Why are you eating over there? Oh, oh yeah, you're right. Let me go eat with you. And like Peter just gets scared and starts eating with them. That doesn't sound like Peter. Peter's going to die later on, according to church tradition, upside down, right? He's crucified upside down for the gospel. Far be it from Peter to be scared of a few Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who are saying you need to eat over here and not at that lunch table. It just doesn't fit the picture of Peter. So then what was Peter scared of? Because it says, look at verse verse 12. It says he, he eventually withdrew. He was withdrawing himself and separating himself because he what? Feared those from the circumcision party. He was scared of something. That's what Paul says, right? So the question is, what was Peter scared of? Well, D.A. Carson 
puts it together like this. And we have to admit right now, this is all we have on the story. There's no other chapters of the Bible we could turn to. So no matter who says what, we're speculating a little bit, right? We don't have biblical text to put together the story. So I'm admitting here, this is a bit of speculation, but anyone who tries to make sense of why he was scared has to speculate a little bit because we don't have text, okay? So here's D.A. Carson's, and I think this is right. He basically says, so Peter's there eating with the Gentiles, right? He's eating with them. Yay, we have church. Let's go eat. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Let's celebrate together. We have life in Christ. We're a church family. He comes and he's doing that regularly. Some Jews from James, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, they come and start eating with them and hanging out with them. So they start separating themselves. Now, what is Peter scared of? They might have told Peter something like this. You know, Peter, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are taking a lot of heat for the gospel. Because the Jews are saying that they're, they're breaking the law of Moses. And now they're getting persecuted. So, and he's, maybe they start naming some people. So this person died, that person died, this person was thrown in jail. This, you know, that little boy that he was like three years old when you saw him last. Yeah, his dad has been locked up for a few, you know, months and, and he misses his dad. You know, all these, you know, you love these people. You start putting faces with names together and it starts pulling on you. What can I do to relieve the pressure of the persecution of the Jews back in Jerusalem? Well, the Bible doesn't say we, we can't be kosher. Yes, let's preach, you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But, but separating ourselves for these things while still holding to the gospel, that, there's no harm in that. And I'm scared that these people are going to get hurt. And so out of fear of the circumcision party, not circumcision party not being those in the church probably, but unbelievers who are persecuting the church, fear of them persecuting other Christians because of Peter's actions and the Jewish Christians' actions, starts to say, I think we could still keep the law of Moses to some degree and still preach the gospel. And so he separates himself. Because it says not, not only do other people follow Peter, but who follows Peter? Barnabas. He's the leader. Paul and Barnabas are the two leaders of the church. It seems crazy to me that Barnabas would just forget the gospel. Or Peter would forget the gospel. You're justified by works now. They're not saying that. They're still holding on to the true gospel, but their actions are not lining up with the true gospel. That's why it says in verse 14. So that's the reason why Paul did it. Because, because what they're doing is starting to actually affect the way people view the gospel. So when do you oppose when does Paul oppose Peter? And when should we oppose others? Look at verse 14. When does Paul do it? When I saw that they were what? Verse 14, when they were what? Deviating from what? The truth of the gospel, or they were not living rightly or in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Then what did he do? When I saw that, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, Peter, who are a Jew, you live like a Gentile, and you don't keep all of the law of Moses, how can you preach to these Gentiles to become Christian and then compel them to live like Jews in keeping these laws? That is against the gospel. Now, I know you, Peter, don't deny the gospel, but your actions are not in line with the gospel. And if people, and you're a leader in this church, your influence is going to communicate a false gospel. And that's not acceptable, Peter. So Paul opposes Peter to his face, not behind closed doors. This is not Matthew 18, verse 15. Tell, tell them their sin in private. This is a leader. This is a public sin. 
And so it is addressed publicly. And so Paul rebukes Peter because if Peter was allowed to continue, then the very preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles would be invalidated. And Peter's not, and Paul's not down for that, and we shouldn't be down for that either. It's crucial that Jews and Gentiles are not two separate people, but they are one people under the one standard of Jesus Christ, not separated by legitimate, though now expired, standards of the Old Covenant laws. They were legitimate for its time, but now that Christ has come, those Old Covenant laws have expired. And just like drinking expired milk, right? It's just not good. It was good when it was there, but it's not good anymore. And you do it, and you're going you're gonna to introduce all kinds of problems. And so now we, too, must oppose, like Paul, when should we oppose other Christians? We should oppose other Christians, especially leaders in public, when their actions deviate from the gospel and lead to promoting a different gospel. So, for example, if I, like Peter, um, preached a different gospel than the one you heard, then you should oppose me, Right? If my actions or the actions of any of our leaders invalidate the gospel, even though we preach a correct gospel, but if our actions are invalidating the gospel, then we must be humbly and firmly opposed. So, for example, I could proclaim God is holy and he made us. We're sinners and we we deserve God's punishment. But Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you'll be saved. I could say that and preach that regularly. And yet, if I at the same time while I'm saying that, I say... For example, homosexuality is not, homosexual acts are not sinful. And they don't need to be repented of because they're not sin. But I'm still preaching this gospel that I just said. It's not quite a direct denial of the gospel. But for those people that I'm saying it's not a sin to, how do you receive the gospel of the work of Christ? By faith and what? Repentance. If you can't repent from that sin, then you can't really receive the gospel without true repentance. That doesn't mean you don't fight it anymore. But my point is, if you start calling sins non-sin, you're cutting them off from receiving the gospel. So I could keep preaching the right gospel. But if you take this one wobbly thought over here and you draw it to its logical conclusion, these people under that wobbly thought cannot receive the gospel in my preaching. And that's a problem in a church that's trying to spread the gospel everywhere. Or if we say, if I preach the gospel, yet say there are ethnic people group distinctions or cultural or nationalistic markers that should define our church. We should be a church defined by this cultural marker or this nationalistic marker or this ethnic people group distinction. That should define our church's family and our church's conduct. What am I doing? I'm dividing the church on cultural or or cultural lines. And that's not, that's not the people of God. We're united in who? Christ. And we're separate from those outside of Christ. That is the dividing line. There is no other dividing line. And when you create another dividing line, you create anti-gospel living. Things that are not in line with the gospel. So whether you add rules, like cultural rules, or whether you take away certain things of sin, if you add or subtract from the truth of the Bible, eventually you're going to undermine the gospel. So what do we do? What's the application for us? So like Paul, what is God calling us to do? As members of this church, God is calling you to guard the gospel in the life of this church. This means you must know the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? Can you, from another member of this church, if someone just sat down with you and said, hey, can you you explain the gospel in one minute or less? Could you do it? If you're saying no right now, that's okay. 
Just don't say no next week. Okay? Learn it. You need to know it. You need to be able to articulate. You can't just say, oh, go talk to PJ. He's at the door. Because that's only on Sunday mornings. Right? I'm not at your door all the time. You're, you're, you're supposed to know the gospel and be able to explain it to others. Clearly state it. So that's the first thing. Know the gospel. Secondly, you must connect your ethics, your behavior with the gospel. Your, your, your lifestyle must be gospel-flavored and gospel-shaped. That's the difference between righteousness and moralism. Moralism has a list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. You just have a special list. So you have your Bible, and at the end of your Bible, you have a blank, a blank sheet maybe here at the back. And on the blank sheet here in the back, you, you write your own extra list of rules that everyone else has to keep in the church. That's moralism. When you have things that are not in the Bible that are rules that people have to keep without connecting it to the gospel, that's what we call moralism. So don't add extra requirements to the Bible but rather connect all of your requirements. There are laws in the Bible. There are do's and don'ts, right? There are commands. There is sin and there is non-sin. There is righteous acts. But take all of the commands of the Bible and all the commands you live your life by and all the commands you want to say that the church should keep. Have all of those commands connected to the message of the gospel and connected to Jesus Christ himself personally. Sin is never exclusively breaking a law. Sin is violating the lawgiver. Sin is not just breaking a rule of Jesus. It's attacking Jesus. So connect your rules to Jesus. Because if you don't, you will deviate from the gospel with the requirements that you require of others. So connect it to who Jesus is. And then third, and this, I mean, this part of it is, if you're going to know the commands to connect it to, to the gospel and connect it to Jesus, then you need to know your Bible, right? I mean, there's just, there's just no way around it. You need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to obey all the texts of the Bible you know. You need to come to church on Sundays and, and gather with other members of this church and read the Bible with them and learn the Bible. Learn God's Word. Week in and week out, month in and month out. It's not, it's not flashy. Sunday morning is just another Sunday, right? But what are we doing every Sunday? We're learning the Bible. Because the Bible is guiding and guarding our lives and our church. Now, why must we guard the Bible? We have two reasons, point two and point three. Why must we? That's the main thing. That's the main command. It's the main thing God wants you to get today. So if you're tuning out now, at least you got that. Guard the gospel. Why? Two reasons. Number one, verses 15 and 16, because we've been justified by faith alone. And number two, because we live by faith in Jesus, verses 17 to the end. So let's go to this second point here. Why should we guard the gospel? Because we have been justified by faith alone. Look at verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Let's, let's, let's jump into this now. Paul moves from guarding the gospel to actually defining the gospel here. The gospel is tied to justification. How can I be right with God? How can God accept me, a dirty, sinful, ungodly human being? Now, I know there's people more ungodly than me. I know there's people who've committed more sins than me. But I also know that I'm not sinless. I also know that there have been many godless thoughts and ideas and emotions and actions in my life that I have to give an account for. How can I stand before God on Judgment Day and be righteous and acceptable to God? 
The answer is, or that, the question is, how can I be justified? How can I be declared righteous? Now, we say in our Baptist faith and message, justification is God's gracious and full acquittal, full forgiveness, which brings the believer unto a relationship of peace and favor with God. That's what we want, right? We want God. We want peace and favor with God. So how is one justified? How is one acceptable to God? Or to put it another way, this is a question I like to ask people. Two questions, and this is D. James Kennedy, Evangelism Explosion. If you die tonight, are you sure you're going to heaven? Don't answer out loud, but answer that question. If you die tonight, are you sure you're going to heaven? Number two, if you died right now and God said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? PJ, why should I let you in? Now, the Bible doesn't say he's going to ask these questions, but answering these questions show what you believe about whether you understand the gospel or not. So we need to know, we know how one is justified, Paul says. We know how, and we know, we know, how, we've, we know how to be justified, and we have been justified. So let's look at these. How, do, how, do, how is one justified according to verse 16? No one is justified by the works of the what? Works of the law, but how are we justified? By what? Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ. Not by the works of, law, of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot, brothers and sisters, look up here, and even non-Christians, non-Christians especially, people get Christianity wrong right here. You cannot be acceptable to God. You cannot be justified by, before God by what you do. You cannot do enough works of the law to be saved. You can never cover your previous sins. You can't outweigh your good, your bad with your good. Never. And even if you did, that doesn't, God doesn't judge you on that scale. He judges you on whether you've done any bad ever. No one is justified by keeping the law covenant of Moses in the Bible. No one is justified by going to a gospel church or becoming a member of a gospel church. No one is justified by preaching a sermon on justification, which I'm doing right now. No one is justified by the works of the old covenant law, the new covenant law, national law, or any law. No one is justified by his works of God's law, even. Justification is not by works. It's not by what you do. It's by what Jesus has done. It's by Jesus' Christ it's by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you. That's the good news. That it doesn't depend on you. It's impossible for you to be acceptable before God for, by how you live. So the Cambridge Declaration, a declaration of some Christian churches, it says this. There is no basis for our acceptance before God. No basis for our acceptance before God except in Christ's saving work. Not in our patriotism, churchly devotion, or moral decency. I would add to that list. Or Christian upbringing. If you're a kid and you're in this church, kids, listen up for a second. You're not a Christian because your mom and dad are Christian. It's not by your Christian upbringing. That's not how you're a Christian. The gospel declares what God has done for us in Christ. It's not about what we can do to reach him. So you might say, well, we're just, how are we justified? If it's not by works, it's by what? Faith in who? In Jesus Christ. It's by trusting in Christ. You're saying, ah, oh, PJ, there's a work I did. I'm trusting Christ. Isn't that one of my works? Well... Yes and no. I mean, you are the one believing. God doesn't believe for you. Now, faith is a gift. It says in Ephesians 2, 8. 
But even then, you're still the one believing. You have to believe. If you're not a Christian, I say to you this morning, you must believe in Jesus Christ or you will not be saved. You have to believe. God will not believe for you. So in a sense, you're the one doing it. You're doing the work of believing. But then you think about it, is, is believing really a work? I mean, believing is resting in something else, resting in whatever your faith is in. So are you sitting on the chair or is the chair sitting for you? You're sitting on the chair, right? But how much work are you doing sitting on the chair? I mean, what's doing all the work right now as you sit down? What's holding you up from the ground? I mean, you're not doing too much of the work. You say, but PJ, I'm sitting here. Well, yes, you're sitting there, not debating that. But the reason you're not on the floor is because the chair is doing all the work. It's the one, you know, fighting against gravity to keep you up. Not you. Or let's try it from another angle if that doesn't work for you. If you legitimately were fined $2 million by the IRS, right? Your favorite group in this country, right? The IRS. If, you're, if you were legitimately fined $2 million, you got that notice in the mail, and you don't have $2 million, and a billionaire calls you up and says, hey, I want to help you out. I want to give you $2 million, but you have to come to my office by 9 a.m. in the morning. Sharp, don't be late, and I'll give you a two. Walk through the door, come in by 9 a.m., I'll give you $2 million to pay off your debt. You might say, I paid off this debt. I went to the, I woke up at 7 a.m. I made sure I went through traffic early to get there. I'm the one who walked through the door. I paid off my debt. I guess you could say you paid it off, but did you really do the work of, of earning the $2 million to pay it off? No, like you just received, really. You did the work of receiving. I guess you could call that a work. But it's really the work. I mean, when someone gives you a gift and you receive the gift, you say, I received this gift. You don't boast in the fact that you received it, right? You're boasting in who? The giver. Thank you for the gift. You get all the credit for blessing me with this gift. And that's what God's talking about here. You're justified by faith, not by your works. Yes, are, yes you're the one who believes, but who's doing all the work? Who's doing all the heavy lifting of saving you? Jesus is. He died for you. He lived for you. He rose for you, not by what you do, but what Christ has done. And you have to, you must receive it by faith. But you cannot boast in receiving it. So we're justified by faith, not by works of the law. If you go to the end of verse 16, it says, We are justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So, one uh, together for the gospel, article 12 says this, we affirm that sinners are justified only through faith in Christ and that justification is by faith alone or, and that justification by faith alone is both essential and central to the gospel. We deny that any teaching that minimizes, denies, or confuses justification by faith alone can be considered true to the gospel. You want to know, church, it's true to the gospel? Do they preach that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by your works? If a church doesn't teach that, run. Run. Or... Go to the congregational meeting and vote them out. Because anyone who teaches the gospel different than what you receive needs to be cursed. Right? Guard the gospel. But you don't need, you're not saved by knowing the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You're saved by trusting in who? Christ. Not trusting in the doctrine of justification, but trusting in Christ. And so look at verse 16 again. It says, We know that one, no one is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed... So we don't just know the doctrine, but we also have believed ourselves in Christ Jesus so that we're justified. So we have believed, and that's why we're justified. So don't just know the doctrine, know Jesus, right? 
Have you trusted in Jesus personally? For me, I mean, it was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. As a Roman Catholic, someone read to me Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. When I heard that, I was devastated. You're saying, devastated? That's good news. Well, it wasn't good news to me at first, because it just made me realize that I'm not good enough. And I'm going to hell. I was in, I was in a debate with a teacher saying, I'm not going to go to hell because I'm a good kid. And she was saying, no. I said, where does it say in the Bible? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Okay, I lost. Not only did I lose this argument, that means I'm going to hell. And she's right. I'm never going to be good enough for God. But then she said, but you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus died for you. He rose for you. Repent and trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. And so I did. And God justified me. He declared me righteous right there, January 8th, 1989. You don't have to remember the specific date. That's not as important as actually trusting in Christ. But I remember that date for me. And it was there that I believed in Christ and he justified me. Not by what I've done, but, but, but by what he's done. And so if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that Christianity is not saying get religious. There are two false ways to go to hell or two true ways to go to hell, two false roads to heaven. One is, be true to yourself and do whatever you want. Don't listen to anyone. You can do that, but if you don't listen to God, then you're in trouble. The other, that's irreligion. That's the irreligious way of going to hell. Then there's a religious way of going to hell. Keep a bunch of rules and do a bunch of things and, and do as much as your religion teaches you or even your Christian church teaches you. And if you do enough, you'll go to heaven and trust in Jesus. That's wrong too. If you're not a Christian, you might say, that's surprising. I didn't know that. No, that's right. You can't go to church enough to go to heaven. You need to trust in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. It's saying that God is holy and he made you. We're sinners and we deserve God's judgment in hell. Yet God sent Jesus to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you'll be accepted. So turn from your sin and, and turn from your religion. Turn from your righteousness. Turn from your Christian biblical righteousness. Don't trust in that. Trust in Christ alone. If you're a Christian, rest in Christ's work alone. Rest in his grace. Be still and know that he is God. If you're a, this is what I'm going to say for our church. As a church family, how does this apply to us as a church? Here's how it applies. For First Southern Baptist Church, we need to be a community of grace and not a community of performance. Do you, know how to, do you know how to cultivate a culture of grace and not performance in this church? We share the message of grace. We gospelize one another. So how do I do it, PJ? Get practical. By the way, I don't think I'm going to get to my third point. We're just going to close after this probably, but that's okay. Um, let me get practical here. So how do I gospelize one another? How do we gospelize each other as, as fellow Christians? Here's what you do. Listen to each other's stories. Not just their life story. You should listen to that, but also listen to their story this week. How was your week? Listen to their stories. And then, and then, when you're listening to their stories, get a sense of the restlessness in their soul. Right? Isn't everyone somewhat restless? How's your week? Oh, I was feeling really bad. I had a, lot of, had a hard time at work. I had a hard time in the family. My health. You know, so you ask someone about their week, you're going to get a sense of their restlessness. Right? And then, and then when they're restless... Flash the biggest smile you can and give them the gospel. Say something like this. I have good news for you today. God is gracious 
so you don't have to prove yourself. God accepts us in Christ. You don't have to approve yourself. Isn't that freeing? I don't have to prove myself to my church family. I don't have to prove myself to my family. I don't have to prove myself to my neighbors. I don't have to prove myself to God. In Christ, God has justified me, so I don't have to prove myself to anyone. I just get to keep trusting God and living my life. That's sweet. When we say that to one another, and you keep gospelizing each other, we cultivate a culture of grace in our church and in our families, not a culture of works and performance. So this is how we're going to guard our church, by gospelizing one another. Here's what another group of churches have said. We reaffirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. That means Christ's righteousness is counted to us. We deny that justification rests on any merit to be found in us, or upon the grounds of an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us, or that an institution claiming to be a church that denies or condemns sola fide, that's faith alone, can be recognized as a legitimate church. So the second point was you guard the gospel because we're justified by faith alone. Let me just briefly summarize the third point and we'll be done. Guard the gospel because we live by faith. I'm skipping over a lot of the argument here. For the sake of time, let me just get to verse 20. Okay, I, have three, I had three little arguments here, but I'll just give you one. Verse 20. Why should, we, why should we guard the gospel? Because we live every day by faith in Jesus. Because some people might say, okay, if you're saved by faith and not by your works, then you get to believe in Jesus and live any way you want. Right? Have you heard that before? If you're not saved by your works, then you could live however you want. And that's not good. And we say, yeah, that's not good. And you know some people who said they're Christian and they live any way they want. And they still say they're Christian. And you know that that's not right. Well, what do you do? How do you think about that? Galatians 2.20 talks about what a real Christian is. We live every day by faith in Jesus. So it says, I have been crucified, end of verse 19 in some of your translations. I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean, I've been crucified with Christ? When Jesus died... I died. I was right there with him, united to Jesus. We died with him. And when we died with him, we died to the law, verse 18. And we died to the old covenant markers. And we died for, we died for our sins that we committed with Jesus as Christ died for our sins that he never committed. We died together for our sins and not his since he had none. But we didn't only die with him. Look at verse 20. We no longer live. But who lives in us? Christ. So Christ died with us. We died with Christ. And guess who lives with us? Christ lives with us. So if you say, oh, become a Christian, you can live any way you want. Because you, you said you're a Christian. You made a decision. No. If you made a decision, guess what? Guess who lives with you? Christ lives with you. You no longer live, but Christ lives with you. And by the way, it's not in you like he's empowering you. That's true in the Bible. John 14 through 16. This is not talking about Christ empowering you. This is talking about Christ accompanying you. You accompanied him in his death on the cross. He's accompanying you every day of your life as you live your life here. He's with you while you're sitting down listening to the sermon. When you walk out of here, he's with you. When you talk to your family at home, when you talk to your neighbors, when you go to work, when you rest before you go to sleep, Jesus is with you. He lives with you. He's accompanying you everywhere you go in your life. So verse 20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me or with me. And the life I now live in this body, this flesh... I live by faith, by trusting who? Faith in who? Faith in Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So every day, I live by trusting Jesus. And when I trust Jesus, I follow Jesus. And when I follow Jesus, I obey Jesus. So if you say, well, once you're justified by faith, you could live however you want. No. 
If you're truly saved, you will do good works. Will you do good works to earn your salvation? No, you can't. But if you're truly saved, you will walk with Jesus and Jesus will walk with you and you will live every day. You get saved by faith and that salvation that comes by faith lives in you every day of your life because he's with you. And as you keep trusting him, you keep growing as a Christian. Doesn't mean you'll never sin. Doesn't mean you won't struggle. Doesn't mean you won't fall into big sins sometimes. But he's with you and you'll repent and you'll get back up and you will keep living by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So no, we don't have a license to sin because we're justified by faith alone. We have a partner for life. We have a trustworthy Savior and Lord. We trust Jesus to save us and to lead us and to guide us every day. And why do we trust him? Because he loved us and gave himself for us. So so those who say, well, justification by faith alone means you have a license to sin. No, when we live by faith in Jesus, we lose our license to sin against Jesus. Say that again. When we live by faith in Jesus, we lose our license to sin against Jesus because we walk with him and he walks with us. And so let's guard the gospel as a church family because we've been justified by faith alone and not by works. And because Jesus lives with us as we trust him every single day. So let's guard it in this church and let's spread it. Let's keep beating it into each other's heads and into the heads of those who don't know Christ. That faith might come by hearing the word. That they might believe in Christ, call on Christ to save him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.